Well, good morning, everyone. So, if you're a visitor here for the first time, I just want to let you know that I'm not Cots. He was a good-looking one, the great teacher that was, that was here earlier giving the announcements. I'm also not Lori Tamura. <laughs> She's also a beautiful one that gives all the great words with high energy. So I'm, I'm just Bob, just plain <laughs> Bob. You know, I'm kind of setting the bar a little bit low for your expectations. But my prayer is the Holy Spirit would just fill that gap where, where you just see something new for the first time. So with that, good morning, Westlight Church. You know, it's, it's a privilege for me to, to be here to share the gospel with you. Um, and I, and I got to tell you, the gospel is like a great big mystery to me. And I just love mysteries. Anybody else out there love mysteries? Yeah, a few of you guys, right? See, because I think God has given all of us curiosity. And we want to learn more. We want to see things. And, and we love to discover things. And the great thing about God, he's all about discovering new things. And with God, there's a great big mystery surrounding him because God is just actually too big, too deep, too expansive for us to ever completely know and understand. So we read scripture, we listen to the Holy Spirit, we have our experiences, and then we, we start connecting all those dots. But with God, we have to connect those dots with our imaginations. So we paint a picture so we get a little bit of understanding of his mystery. But you know, the picture I paint and the picture you paint, they're not necessarily the same because our experiences are a little bit different. The Holy Spirit communicates to us a little bit differently. So we get together and we share our experiences. We share what the Holy Spirit communicates to us. We share what we've learned as we read scripture. And then together we can fill in some more dots and we get a better picture of the mystery that's behind the Lord. And so today, I want to give you a little bit of a glimpse into some of the experiences, some of the dots that I've connected with respect to the kingdom of God. And today is really just an introduction to the kingdom of God. You know, the first time in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus mentions the kingdom of God was in chapter 4. And today, we're going to start chapter 7, or we're going to be reading out of chapter 7. And he mentions the kingdom of God for the third time. Now, usually if Jesus says something once, you know it's important. If he says something two or three times, well, you know it's, pretty, it's, it's very important. But in the rest of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus mentions the Gospel, the Kingdom of God, 29 more times. 32 times Jesus talks about the Kingdom of God. So I think you get the message here, right? The importance that Jesus places behind the Kingdom of God. So with that little teaser, let's just go ahead and get into our scripture verse. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they asked, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits. And he gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, 
and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. You know, that, that's a really interesting way that Jesus ends this short little discourse to John, right? I mean, he talks about all these great miracles that were happening, and he ends it with, blessed is he who does not stumble on account of me. Well, with all these great things happening, why would anybody stumble over Jesus? One thing, you know, as I, I used to watch older pastors, they always take off their glasses, right? I used to think that's funny. I don't think that's funny anymore. <laughs> So let me give you a little background of of what was happening during this time. See, John the Baptist was sitting in a jail cell. He was sitting in King Herod's dungeon. Now, King Herod was only a puppet king. See, he didn't really have sovereign authority or rule. He ruled under the authority of the Roman Empire. He ruled under the authority of the Caesars. So we have to talk a little bit about history and what was happening at this time. You see, John the Baptist was considered the last of the Old Testament prophets. But between the last prophet in the Old Testament and John, there was a 500-year-plus gap, 500 years. Now, John came preaching of the coming king. See, he knew that he was there to proclaim the coming king of Israel. And what he was doing, he was printing a message of repentance. And everybody that, was, that heard him, that was cut to the heart, that recognized what he was saying was true, came to John to be baptized. And he baptized them. And by doing this, he was cleansing them and preparing their hearts for the king. See, that was John's role, and he knew it. But John's expectation of the Savior, of this coming king, was the same as all the rest of the Israelites. So this is what, you ha- what we have to remember. Remember, for 500 years, Israel was under foreign rule. 500 years. Think about how long a span that is. 500 years. If you think about how old the United States is, double that. You know, Israel was under foreign domination for 500 years. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, all at one time or another had conquered Israel or conquered the territory that was Israel. And they were under foreign domination. But here is the uniqueness of the Jewish culture. Through 500 years, their culture endured. Through 500 years of occupation and oppression, they never lost their identity. See, there was a hope that the Jews had. There was a hope that the Israelites had. And this hope was based upon prophecies written 500 years before the time of John the Baptist, that there will come a king. And this king was going to restore Israel to prominence. See, this king was going to be the son of God. This king was going to be the son of David, the root of Jesse. This king was going to be savior and Messiah. This king would finally break down foreign rule. The time of God's wrath was going to be over, and Israel was going to be restored to prominence with their own king, sovereign, only under Jehovah God. That was what they were waiting for. That was the hope that they held out for. Year after year, decade after decade, 500 years of waiting and hoping for the Savior. And now something remarkable was happening. This guy, Jesus, shows up on the scene. 
And he starts preaching in ways they never heard before. And not only that, miracles are happening. Miracle after miracle after miracle. And you can kind of get the feel. If you were sitting in their shoes, can you kind of get the feel and the excitement of what was happening? See, crowds were filling and surrounding Jesus because is this the guy? Is he the one? Is he the king that we've been waiting for for 500 years? See, the excitement was growing with message after message that he preached, with the miracles that they saw. Here's the guy. He's the one. But, but let's look at what was going on with John at this time. See, John was in chains. He was sitting in Herod's jail. So what's going on? Wasn't this guy the king? Wasn't this guy supposed to set the oppressed free, set the captives free? But here was John in chains in a jail. So what was happening? You know, sometimes the expectation we have is not met with the reality of our situation. I actually remember that from one of Cott's messages from a couple months ago, right? If you guys recall any of that? See, we have oftentimes have an expectation gap. We think God should do certain things, and we have high expectations for what he should do. And then the reality of everyday life, our situation, you know, when we're in crisis, there's a gap. And in this gap, John the Baptist began to have a crisis. John the Baptist began, began to fill that gap with doubt. See, there was a time when John the Baptist saw Jesus, and he saw the, the, the Spirit of God descend upon him, and he called him out and said, there goes the Lamb of God. But now, in the reality of his current situation, he began to have some doubts. He became troubled in spirit. Now, have you guys ever experienced that, where you're troubled in spirit because your expectations and reality just didn't meet up? But see, Jesus' response to John was really remarkable. First off, he, he doesn't rebuke John. You know, doubt is a normal experience when that happens, and Jesus expects that there'll be times where there is that gap. But what Jesus explains to John, what Jesus has his disciples tell John, is key for John's understanding, but it's also the key for our understanding of his kingdom. See, in verse 21 through 23, Jesus tells John all the incredible things that were happening, the curing of the sick, the casting out of evil spirits, the healing of the blind, the raising of the dead. And then he says that incredible statement, blessed is he who does not stumble on account of me. So let's go to key number one, all right? Don't take offense when your expectation of Jesus does not meet the reality of your situation. Every single one of us, are going to be times where we're going to get offended, right? Where things don't work the way we think they should work, and we cry out to Jesus, and we say, why? Why am I going through this? Why are my kids going through this? Why are my parents going through this? Why, right? Have you guys ever been there? Right? Where there's some disappointment and we cry out to God. And there are times where our mind is offended by what's happening and we're offended by Jesus. Sometimes it's not just Jesus. Sometimes we're offended, offended by other Christians. Have you ever been there offended by a brother or sister in the Lord? I think that's common. 
I think that happens to all of us. But see, the response that Jesus calls us to do is key. See, whenever we're in that position where we say, why, Lord? Why me? Why this? Why, why, why? Jesus, in my experience anyways, usually doesn't answer the why question. Instead, he asks a question back to us. Will you trust him? He says, will you trust me? In the midst of everything that's happening to you, will you trust me? You know, we're not the only ones that are offended by Jesus or the Father. Did you know that Jesus was also offended by the Father? Do you think about that? Think about the Garden of Gethsemane. See, the cross, when it was right before Jesus, was a huge offense to Jesus. And Jesus cried out to the Father, prayed so hard that, that his sweat was coming out in blood. So fervent was his despair at that moment as he cried out to, to his father and he said, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, may it pass. But what he said was then key right after that, right? And you know all what he said. Not my will, but your will be done. See, at all times, Jesus always came back to the same place, even when he was offended by what he had to go through, when the reality of his situation was so extreme, he still came to the place where he was able to say, not my will, but your will be done. Not my way, but your way be done. So key number one of entering into his kingdom is understanding that even though we get offended from time to time, we have to still come to the place and say, yes, Lord, I still trust you. And yes, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. So let's go to the next passage. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Let me read that last part again. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Wow. Isn't that an incredible statement? Think about all the great people that have ever lived. And Jesus is saying, John is the greatest of all of them. And then he says, but he who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. Now, I don't know about you, but that, that, that just blows my mind. I mean, how could that possibly be? Well, to understand that, let's go back to what Jesus told John. Remember, there was a lot of miracles. I said there were a lot of miracles that followed Jesus everywhere he went, right? So what are miracles? You go to the next slide. See, miracles are just signs. Right? 
They're a visible means of communicating or pointing out something, direction, typically. See, these miracles that Jesus performed were signs. They were signs of his coming kingdom. They pointed to his kingdom that was about to arrive. And I think that's what people were all excited about. They were seeing these signs and said, this is the one. He's the king. See, these are the signs that they were pointing to, the miracles that, that were arriving, were pointing to the coming kingdom. But here's the thing. Even though they're expecting and seeing these signs and expecting the kingdom to come, they didn't recognize the nature of his kingdom. Sorry, I got my pages out of turn here. You see, his kingdom is real, but it's spiritual. His kingdom is real, but it's invisible. His kingdom doesn't have geopolitical boundaries. His kingdom doesn't have a real person, a king or an emperor, that you can all see and point to and say, that's my king. See, the nature of his kingdom is very different than earthly kingdoms. Now, like an earthly kingdom, however, power and authority flow from the top down. But in earthly kingdoms, the power flows to control people. People are always subject of kingdoms or empires. But in God's kingdom, his authority and power flow down, but it's not people that are controlled. His power and authority are exerted over demons, over sickness, and even death. Even the weather. It's a different kind of authority, a different kind of power. And at that time, there are only two people who understood this. Even the disciples didn't understand this. Not yet. Not at this time. The only two people that understood this was, was Jesus and the Roman centurion that you read about two weeks ago. Isn't that amazing? See, they all witnessed these miracles, but they, and they knew that the kingdom was coming, but they didn't understand the nature of the kingdom. So let's talk a little bit about the context of where this was happening. 2,000 years ago, the the Roman Empire was at its peak. And it was glorious. It was incredible. The Roman Empire was probably the greatest empire ever, even by today's standards. If you look at the amount of conquests, the amount of territories, the span and reach of its geopolitical power, if you look at the duration, how long it lasted, very little that probably comes in comparison. See, the Romans were incredible builders, and they built huge monuments that were intended to last forever. Do you know that the Colosseum took eight years to build? If you think about how incredible the Colosseum is, eight years. Today, you know, it takes us at least eight years to build some of these big stadiums, right? They did it in eight years without cranes, without modern tools importing marble from every far ends of the world in all their conquered areas. See, all the things they built, whether it's it's the forum, the palaces, the Colosseum, everything they've done was built in such a huge way to not just inspire awe, but inspire fear and intimidation. 
If you were to go in Rome at that time, you would see these incredible architecture, aqueducts, roadways, buildings, and you'd be in awe because it was meant to inspire fear and awe in you. It was meant to show you how small you were in comparison to this great Roman Empire. And if you were an enemy of Rome, you were crucified. Public execution, slow torture for everybody to see, and that's the way they intimidated you. See, people submitted to Rome through fear and intimidation and awe. That was the way they controlled things. That's the way they controlled their territories. That's the way they controlled their citizens. Fear, intimidation, and awe. But let's compare that to Jesus' kingdom. He didn't build anything. Peace and order in his kingdom didn't come through fear and intimidation. It came through love. People submit to Jesus. People submit to his kingdom, not out of fear, but out of love. They do it because they want to do it. See, Jesus' kingdom is where God's will is always done. And everywhere Jesus went, God's will happened, right? What was happening? Everywhere Jesus went, the kingdom of God intersected with the material world, with the earthly kingdoms. And the demonstration of that was with all the signs and wonders that were were occurring. So this is key number two. God's kingdom is real, but invisible. Let me do it one more time. So kingdom power and authority are available to us now whenever we as God's children align our will with Jesus' will. Now, I need to explain that a little bit. What What do I mean by that? See, what we're studying here is Jesus' introduction to his kingdom. But after Jesus died and rose again, he sent his Holy Spirit, and his Holy Spirit came into each one of us. You know, when we said that prayer, and we bowed our heads, and we said, Lord, I need you. And we made him our Lord and Savior. Something incredible happens. His Holy Spirit comes down and combines with our spirit and we become in our spirit one with him, right? That's a mystery. We become in unity with Jesus. And with that, we become in unity with the Father. Now, it's something that happens that we take by faith because, quite frankly, we don't fully understand it. And to be honest with you, we probably don't even feel it. We don't get it, right? It's a mystery because it's, it's something that we will never fully understand, like we'll never fully understand the Trinity, But it's true. When that happens, Jesus says that we are born again. His spirit and our spirit combine so that we become in unity with him. And when we become in unity with Jesus, we become his children. And at that point, we are no longer, we are no longer outsiders. We have actually become children of God. So I think we could flip to the next slide. Okay, so then his spirit testifies with our spirit that we are his children. Okay. That's the assurance that we have 
in Jesus, that we are his children. And see, this is the key point to understand. People that are children of God, right, in his kingdom, we become not just citizens, but we become his children. And children, people that are inside his family are always greater than people outside the family. Children are always greater than servants. See, what makes us great, what makes us greater than the greatest person that ever lived prior to to Jesus' coming is not based upon what we do. It's not based upon our accomplishments. It's not based upon our situation and things that have happened or haven't happened. It's based upon our relationship with Jesus. It's based upon the fact that we're called his children. And children are always greater than outsiders. And that's the key to understanding this, that we are called children of God. You know, Charles Kraft liked to say that um, it's about being, not doing, that we're created as human beings, not human doings. But that's something that we often get mixed up. So let's go on. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Jesus went on to say, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine and you say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and you say here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by all her children. I'm going to talk a little bit about that wisdom here in a moment. But first let me ask you a question. You know, when, when Jesus sees us, what does he see? You know, when we look at each other, what do we see? So if you guys are, are, are looking at me today, what do you see? Right? This tall, good-looking 39-year-old something? Okay. Not so 39. Not so tall. And I know at least a few of you are thinking, not so good-looking either. <laughs> But what do you see? You see the outside, right? People usually see the outside. But Jesus, what does he see? See, Jesus sees us on our inside, right? How many times in Scripture have we read Jesus knowing their thoughts or Jesus knowing their heart? Or how many times have we read about God the Father saying, man looks at the outside, but I look at the inside, right? Jesus sees through the external and looks right into the inside, right into our heart. And if I have to be honest, you know, I know that for myself, I have both childlike and childish thoughts, emotions, and behavior. It's all in me. You know, before I retired, I was a manager at the Boeing Company for a long time, and so I had a lot of uh, experience managing people and watching people, watching their behavior, watching their emotions. And I see the same thing, you know. You don't have to look too hard to be able to see both childlike and childish thoughts, emotions, and behavior in all of us, in anyone. In fact, um, 
Psychologists today call that inner children, having inner children. We all have inner children. So what inner children did Jesus see when he was looking at his followers? See, I think Jesus sees the childlike attribute of being real. Have you ever watched little kids? You know, their, their emotions are, are real. They haven't learned how to cover that up yet. So you see raw emotions. When they're happy, they're joyous, they're happy. When they're sad, they're sad. When they're angry, they're angry. You see everything, right? It's very visible. It's very transparent. And I think that's what Jesus sees in, his, in, in John's disciples and his disciples. See, when John came talking about the need for repentance, they were cut to the heart. They mourned, they cried out, they sang a dirge. That's a song of mourning to God. And they sang it out loud in front of all the Pharisees even. And then when Jesus came on the scene, the excitement was there. It was palatable. Right? They didn't quite understand the nature of his kingdom, but they thought he was the king. And they were super excited, cutting down palm branches, hailing the king. Right? It was pop the corks. Full-on dogpile celebration. Real excitement. Real emotions. That's what he sees in his disciples. What about the Pharisees? I think he sees something else in the Pharisees. How many of you guys, when you were little, like to pretend? Didn't didn't we all pretend? That's kind of a... You have to do that as a kid. Everybody pretends. You know, we pretended to be moms and dads. You know, we pretended to be animals, maybe lions and tigers, elephants. Um, pretend to be firefighters, army men. You know, all kinds of things. We played pretend. Now, I think as a child, when you, when you pretend, it's fine. It's a part of the things that you have to do. Because imagination is so important. But here's the problem. If you continue as an adult to pretend to be something you're not, especially in front of somebody that can see right through you, see, that's not being childlike anymore. That's being childish. And see, the Pharisees were pretending to be something that they were not, and Jesus can see right through them, and he sees the childishness of that. But here's even what's scarier the Pharisees actually started to believe in what they were pretending to be. That's a scary thought. But that gets me to to something that I want to talk about here very quickly, and that's the wisdom of the world. See, in the wisdom of the world, there is something that's called fake it till you make it. Have you guys heard about that? Fake it till you make it? All you have to do is do a quick internet search on fake it till you make it, and you're going to see all kinds of stuff. You'll see TED Talks on it, You'll see articles written about it, you know, five ways to fake it till you make it, ten ways to fake it till you make it, okay? And what, what's that about? Well, that's about pretending to be something that you desire to be, something that you're not, you know that you're not, so you pretend to be that, okay? And eventually, after a while, you'll become what you have pretended to be. See, that's what, the, that's what happened to the Pharisees. And you know, I'm going to tell you something. I actually think that works. And here's why. See, when you use your imagination to picture something, okay? In the business world, they call that vision. 
but you use your imagination to picture who you are, right, what you want to achieve, and you keep thinking about that, you keep pretending to be that, what are you doing? You're training your mind. Right? That's what's happening. You're training your mind. Your mind gets transformed into to what you were to what you want to become. And I think to a large degree that works. But here's the thing. If you do that, if that's your philosophy in life, if you go along with fake it till you make it, I think while you will be successful from worldly standards, it'll prevent you from entering the kingdom of God. See, there's, there's a second type, type of wisdom going on here. See, in the world, you have to fake it till you make it. But the wisdom of God is, it's not what you do. It's who you are. So let me explain what's happening. See, in the culture of this material world, the economy is based upon power. Power and influence. But see, you can't trade power and influence, so what do we do? We convert that power into money. Because money is tangible. Money is easy to trade. But here's the thing. Money is not evil. Okay? If you heard money is the root of all evil, that's actually an inaccurate quote. <laughs> it's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. Okay? So I don't, want, I don't want you to come away saying, oh, Bob says you shouldn't have money. No. Okay? That's, not, that's not the point. See, the point is, though, that, that money... When you combine it with our, with our own sinful nature, right, with our desire to accumulate, becomes a problem. See, when we start off with having, in, in life, we start off having just a little bit of power and a little bit of influence. But the world measures power and influence by money. That's the world's measure of it. So what does the world tell you to do? It tells you to fake it till you make it. Pretend what you want to be, and as long as you keep pretending that, sooner or later you will become what you've been pretending to be. And like I said, to a large degree, that, that kind of works. The more money you have, the more power you have, the more influence you have, the greater you are. In today's culture, and in the Roman culture, the culture of Jesus' time. But in the kingdom of God, it's different. The economy of his kingdom is also based upon power, but the median, of the median of exchange is not money. The medium exchange in the kingdom of God is love. Big difference. Because of who we are, God lavishes his love on us. Okay? The Apostle John, not to be confused with John the Baptist, the Apostle John, in his first letter to the churches, says, what manner of love is this that God's love has called us to become his children? You know, a more literal translation of that verse says, what kind of country is this that we've entered into that we became his children? See, the kingdom of God is very different. It's more like a family than it is a geopolitical power. God calls us his children, and he lavishes his love upon us. And as he lavishes and we receive that love, we're able to give that love out to all those around us, to our families, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, 
even our enemies. You know, he who is greatest in the kingdom of God is not the one who has the most money. It's the one who is the most loving. Now, again, I want to make this distinction. Those are not mutually exclusive. You could have a lot of money and be very loving. That's the best place to be. (laughs) But here's the point, right? It's really about being the most loving. The most loving person who is submitted to God's will and is willing to do as God calls them to do, is willing to love everybody that God calls them to love, that person can change the culture of a church. That person can change the culture of his workplace or his school. That person can change the culture of the city that they live in or the state or the country or even the entire world if that's what God calls them to do. See, because they become a vessel of just using the overflowing love that comes upon them to just distribute wherever it goes. Like money, but it's love that comes out. Love becomes the principal means of exchange instead of money in the kingdom of God. But then Jesus lives, leaves us to our own conclusion. So you got these two wisdoms, the wisdom of the world or the wisdom of God. And he says, which one is true? Which one is real? And the question for us is, which one are we going to choose? See, all of us are living in, in this material world. But God has given us an opportunity to be in this world, but not of this world. See, Jesus was in the world, but he is not of the world. His kingdom is not of this world. We have the opportunity to live now in the fullness and the power and the authority that comes from living in the presence of Jesus. Not because of what we do or what we've done or our life circumstances or situation, but simply because we are his children. See, I think the whole fake it till you make it philosophy works because you use your imagination to transform your mind. And you become what you pretend to be. Have, have we read something like that in scripture? Right? Romans chapter 1 and 2. But it's different aim. We use our imagination to see Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And when we set our eyes upon Jesus and understanding the truth of who we are as his children, right? we also train our minds. Our minds also go through a transformation. But it's a transformation to the reality and the truth of who we really are. And that is his children. I call that having a sanctified imagination. You know, the kingdom of God flows with love and intimacy. It's like having a heavenly bank account. Jesus fills our heavenly bank account with love and it flows to overflowing so that we easily just distribute that to wherever it's needed. He lavishly spends on his children so that we can go out and spend it on other people. But I will also tell you from time to time, and I'll just speak from personal experience, that my bank, that, that, that heavenly bank account, that love account runs a little bit thin. It starts to run a little bit dry, and I get to the point where, Lord, I don't know. I just, I don't know if I could just keep doing this. Right? Have you guys been there? So today I'm going to extend an invitation to you. 
But for right now, I'd just like you to just sit before the Lord and just, just think about the things that, that we've talked about, that I've, I've spoken to you today. And so we're going to call up the worship team, if the worship team can come forward. And as we go through this, this period of worship, I'd like you to just sit and listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying to you today. To see if anything of what I say rings true to your heart. And then when I come back up, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to bless us. Okay? So let's worship.